Deep discounts are attracting buyers, especially now in uh, California, Nevada, Florida, um, Phoenix, uh, and we're actually seeing some bidding up of foreclosed homes in those areas. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson in our Brooklyn South Bureau. Otherwise known as your house. And yeah, here that's right. that's right. Here in the New York Central Bureau, I'm Laura Conaway. Today is Wednesday, May 27th. That was Walter Maloney. He's the spokesman for the National Association of Realtors you heard at the top. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about Chrysler and how Chrysler's bankruptcy is a big, big deal, uh, even maybe to you, even if you don't own a Chrysler car. But first, the Planet Money Indicator. Adam, it's 2%. 2%. That is actually one of the scariest Planet Money Indicators we've had in a while, although it sure doesn't sound like it. Um, what that is, is Mohammed El Arian, who is um, one of the top guys at uh, PIMCO, like the world's biggest bond fund saying what his prediction is for the growth in the U.S. economy, not this year, not next year, but for a very long time. Um, We've, our entire, I mean, Laura, you and I, our entire life has been living in a 3%, 4% a year growth, and 2% is dramatically less growth than that. Um, They're calling this the new normal. It means an economy that just doesn't feel as expansive and doesn't make us make as much money and get as much new toys every year. Yeah, 2% is the new black. Yeah, pretty scary. And along with 2% comes 8% unemployment. That's the prediction out of PIMCO. And folks, this new normal thing, they're just predictions, of course. Right. And one thing we have learned about predictions is they're very, very wrong a lot of the time, not all the time. So on that happy note, we're going to turn to news from Chrysler. Uh, They had a bankruptcy hearing in New York today. Um, Chrysler is asking the court to say, okay, you can sell yourself to the Italian carmaker Fiat. It's telling the government uh, that this is the best deal possible. They have to convince the government because as they go bankrupt, there's all these people they owe money to who uh, the government is sort of helping make sure they get as much money as they can from the bankrupt Chrysler. Right. And those people are, of course, on the other side of this deal. They're smaller players. And there's a list that includes individual Chrysler dealers around the country and also this Indiana pension fund for cops and teachers, basically people who have, in some cases, their life savings invested in Chrysler. And this whole situation is playing out as General Motors is making its own slide towards bankruptcy and its continued request for more and more federal aid. General Motors, of course, is a much bigger company than than Chrysler. So people are paying attention to Chrysler to see what it means for General Motors. NPR's own Frank Langfitt was at the Chrysler hearing today, and he told us that you'd have no idea you were watching one of the most significant events in the reordering of an entire American industry. It's, uh, it's all lawyers and reporters. Um, there's nobody outside who's fighting this. And it's a fairly straightforward proceeding. You get a sense when you're in there that a lot of stuff has already been agreed to. And you really get a sense that this is a train that's been moving down the tracks at a really good clip. Who's driving? Um, The United States government, President Obama, without any question at all. All of this is being orchestrated by the White House. They, without our taxpayer money, both of these companies are, they've already been sold off. I mean, it's a garage sale. There's nothing to keep these companies running. GM, what? 
the first three months of this year lost $6 billion. So they're like, they're barely even functioning companies. Chrysler has shut down. Um, so the United States government has given them all this money, and the U.S., not surprisingly, is calling the shots, and they've been sort of orchestrating this. So the courtroom, while it's certainly a judicial proceeding, it also felt a little bit like people were kind of going through the motions to get to this point where the judge, they think, is going to say, yes, you can sell this company and exit bankruptcy court. Now, this particular part of the economic crisis where the administration is coming in and playing a, a quite sizable role in the American auto industry is, I mean, it is unusual in the extreme to have government so involved in running for-profit companies. Yeah, it's it's really, really weird. Uh, I was on a call with um, some people yesterday who, who followed this very, very closely. I'm not supposed to tell you who they were. But they indicated that the government was in the process of taking a 70%, up to a 70% stake in General Motors. I mean, which is just kind of hard to fathom. But the reason behind that is they're giving the company so much money. It's going to be probably tens of billions of dollars. They're never going to get that back. So they just want to take, what else can they do but take equity in the company? Now, what the government says is, you know, they always say, we don't want to run this company. We want auto executives to do it. At the same time, let's take a look at that Fiat deal. One of the things they said to Fiat is, if you want another 5% of a stake in Chrysler, you got to deliver a 40-mile-per-gallon engine to the United States. So the Obama administration is directly saying to Fiat that you can have some more of Chrysler, but you got to give us a car that, that does like this on the road. Exactly. So you can say publicly, as the president has, we're not going to dictate policy. But you already have the White House saying, if you want X, you have to deliver Y. And Y is a very fuel-efficient engine, which is what the, the government's policy is towards oil. It's part of its energy policy, part of its auto- automotive policy. So it's very hard to divide this up when you have a government that has other political agendas that are related to the car industry. And let's talk for a second about those agendas, because government comes with one set of goals more fuel-efficient cars, as you've talked about, certainly um, maintaining, you know, the employment rate or trying to get it, get the unemployment rate down in places like Michigan and Ohio. Nobody wants to see in those places the American auto industry go away. Um, A profit-making company like Chrysler comes at things with a very different set of goals. First and foremost among Chrysler's goals has to be, by law, maximizing profit. Absolutely. How do you reconcile those? Well, I think it's going to be fascinating. This is going to be kind of one of the big meta stories of, of what's happening in the auto industry. Because if you talk to people in Michigan, they will say, a lot of people in the auto industry, they smile. You know, when, when the government, when Mr. Obama says anything, they just now nod their heads. They say, sure, well, you know, sure, boss, we'll do whatever you want. But they say that it's it's been very difficult traditionally for those companies to make much money on small cars. Um, the profit margins are very narrow. People perceive rightly that Toyota and Honda are better at making them. And so what they're concerned about is if these fuel standards, you know, and they look to be fairly significant, that they're going to be forced to make small cars they can't make money off of, which would run counter to the taxpayer interest, which is getting some kind of return on the money that we've put into these companies. So in some ways, these things can be very much at odds. And how it plays out is going to be fascinating. And how about just the precedent setting of having the government at the helm of a major corporation like Chrysler? Well, I mean, Mr. Obama said a long time ago, I don't know whether he said it, but others have said the idea is to use this government control to save capitalism. Um, 
I certainly hope that's the case. It, it is it is an uncomfortable position for anybody who covers it, and certainly for the companies as they look at this. It, there is a lot of government control here. There's no denying it. And I think you know we we have been preaching free market capitalism around the world with great success up until recently, and I think people are queasy about that, seeing what we're doing. The other piece of this that that you hear talked about is the government coming in and brokering deals with with Chrysler or deals for Chrysler and for GM that don't necessarily have even consequences across the board. For instance, um, there's the question of all the Chrysler dealers who are in trouble. There's this Indiana pension fund that's fighting back against the Chrysler deal. They're invested in Chrysler and they're fighting back. And I've heard you talk about this as sort of a big versus small issue where there's the big government, the full faith and credit of the United States government, and then these small individuals. Well, I think what you have here, you have a couple things going on. First of all, you have a very popular president who's very good at explaining himself to the American people. I mean, let's face it, bailing out these companies is incredibly unpopular, and yet there's no uprising about it. So he's used the bully pulpit to get this across. The other fact of the matter is money equals power. When you're funding these companies in bankruptcy, you have whether it was Deutsche Bank or the United States government, you have tremendous power to get your way. Because if you walk away, if you're not doing this, these companies are dead. So I think you have both political and a a financial lever that the government is using. And the government is not kidding around. I mean, they're very, when you talk to people in the companies who deal with the government, they were kind of jolted. I mean, a lot of people in, in the Detroit industry, it's still a little bit insular. They sometimes feel like, you know, they're still kind of kings of the American auto industry. I think when they started dealing with the auto task force, it was pretty tough love, and they felt like they were getting, on occasion, kind of slapped around. You mean like your phone rings or your inbox pings, and, and it's the government? It's the government, and the government basically will say to you, for instance, and this is this comes up in the conference calls with the companies, at one point... Somebody said to Fritz Henderson recently on a call, said, so, Fritz, he's the CEO of General Motors, why are you only giving the bondholders 10% of the company? And I believe Fritz said, well, because Treasury told us that's all we could give them. So, I mean, there's no question who is, who's calling the shots here. Frank Langford tells us the judge denied the objector's request for a continuance, meaning, no, they cannot hold the sale. He expects a ruling from the court as early as Wednesday night. Chrysler appears to be having a shockingly quick run through bankruptcy. And that's the other big precedent we're seeing here that has implications far beyond the auto industry. Getting the U.S. government on your side and then going through bankruptcy could end up being something that a lot of other companies try to make happen. Well, Chrysler's making it look good in a certain way, but some of the first documents filed in that bankruptcy court called for the elimination of 789 Chrysler dealerships. And we have here, it's a short little moment on tape, and it kind of captures the reality of that on the ground. It's from one of those dealerships, Dar Cars Chrysler of Fairfax, Virginia. Walter Ray Watson is a senior producer here at NPR, and he went down there on the day the bad news came out earlier this month. And he found himself in a small glass-enclosed room just by the showroom floor with the cars, and he was talking to Jim Higgins, the service director. I started uh, driving parts at uh, a Chrysler dealership in Rockville in mid-'70s. Mr. Arvish hired me when he was general manager at Wheaton Dodge in uh, 75, and I became a service advisor and worked my way up. When he bought the first dealership, Glenmont Chrysler, in 77, where Dark Car started, uh, I went to work for him there, and then 
pretty much been with them ever since. This dealership has been, uh, you know, my family. I've, I've pretty much grown this dealership. The technicians, uh, the people in the parts department, we've all been together a long time. I, I took the technicians as apprentices, and now they're apprentice. They have apprentices, and you know, they were 17 coming out of high school, and now their kids are 17 coming out of high school. So, my name is Jim Higgins. I'm a service director at Dark Horse Chrysler of Fairfax. I've been here for 30 years. Wow. God, you can really hear him choking up. Chrysler of Fairfax will no longer be licensed to sell new Chrysler cars. They are going to sell used cars, presumably under a new name, and continue doing repairs and servicing. So um, I'm going to move to something a little bit more personal, Adam. I sometimes think that people say, you know, the personal is political. And sometimes the personal adds up to the economic, too. And We got a comment on the blog the other day from a listener named Gene Jacob. And it's not really the kind of comment that you get all the time. Gene's family is this strange, isolated example of folks who did exactly the opposite of what the overall culture has been doing. She and her husband are savers, not borrowers particularly, not spenders at all. The most expensive thing she's bought in the last month, she says, is a $13 bottle of wine. Jean Jakob has some advice for the rest of the country, particularly young people. They can't have everything right away. We didn't get everything we've got right now. It took us 45 years of saving and working. And you don't have to use a credit card. You actually can survive on cash matter of fact, it's probably better. Uh, you don't have to eat at fancy restaurants. You don't have to eat at restaurants at all. You don't have to buy new clothes. Consignment stores are wonderful places. I love Goodwill. So what I love about Jean's story is how it is so the opposite of, of the typical American family story, the typical cliche, which frankly my family is fits to a T. You know, the typical story is the grandparents, the Depression generation, saved and saved and, and and lectured the younger generations that they should do the same, um, but we younger generations just ignored them. Jean and her son Steve, who, Laura, you also got a chance to talk to, flipped that particular narrative. Jean's parents were the ones who spent wildly. I mean, there was never a penny saved in our house. We always were on the borderline of despair. Yeah, and I think that's actually one of the reasons I'm more conservative in my finances is because I saw how my grandparents uh, lived and where that got them. And I mean, it's not like they had an unhappy life, but they were always They were always happily spindling everything. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. as soon as they got money, they got rid of it. They felt comfortable, but the people around them definitely did not feel comfortable. So there's a lesson of sorts here. Steve, Gene's son, just got laid off from his job May 1st. He's been working as a game developer in Austin, Texas. And getting laid off is never great news. But unlike a lot of people who've been laid off lately, Steve is in sound shape. He's got a lot of dough in the bank. He can comfortably wait a while before he gets another job. He's got good skills to get another job. He says he's ready just to ride out the recession. I feel very strongly, actually, that everyone should have savings that they can live off a year if something went bad. And that's the, sort of the, the financial philosophy I went to. So pretty much all the extra expenses went into the bank up until I got you know a year's living worth of stuff. And then I could do things like you know actually invest in 401ks and whatnot. 
You know, hearing how much money Steve has saved up actually surprised Steve's mom. What she came into the blog in the first place saying was that her son was floundering, and she walked out surprised really in a good way. And I have to say his story, their story, surprised me too. Yeah, it surprised me as well. And, you know, they they may be uh, an indicator of things to come. There's an awful lot of people out there saying that our economy may be entering one of those massive moments of generational change where we'll all be more like Steve and Gene, saving more, borrowing less, more like our grandparents, but not like Steve's grandparents. Um, So, Laura, I guess that means that Steve and Gene will, since they always like to do the opposite, they're going to go out and get a bunch of credit cards and just spend wildly. Don't, Don't bet on it. Yeah, I don't think so. So um, please tell us about how you are experiencing and, and living through this recession, how you are like the cliche or not like the cliches. Um, you can reach us at our blog all the time at npr.org slash money. Um, we've been posting lots of the pictures you folks are sending, and we really love those. Yes, thank you. Keep them coming, especially pictures of developments lately that, that have gotten frozen by the recession, half-built America. I'm really looking for that stuff. We'll be back podcasting on Friday. I'm Laura Conaway. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. 